you want to work for high paid jobs, impactful jobs in elite companies, tech companies, they're hyper picky. Okay, you want to work at Google, the hiring rate is 0.25%. That's, uh, in fact, I know the former senior vice president for people operations or HR at Google. He's a superstar, right? Google is super famous when it comes to culture. He said it's 20, 25 times harder to get into Google than to get into Harvard. Before any world-changing innovation, there was a moment, an event, a realization that sparked the idea. Before It Happened is a show about that idea. I'm Donna Laughlin, and each week I'll take you on a deep dive into a singular light bulb moment that inspired the visionaries to push forward and change our lives. On this podcast, you'll hear from innovators from an array of industries and philosophies who imagined and are still imagining the future. Grab your passport and let's go on a journey together. Sometimes we spend so much time thinking about the products or ideas that are going to shape our future that we forget about the people we'll rely on to actually build that future. We're a founder-obsessed culture, but what about the people founders rely on to carry out and improve upon their visions? Those people, the executives, the developers, the designers of tomorrow, are just as important to our collective futures as the visionaries themselves. And there just so happens to be a new crop of these young people entering the workforce before our very eyes. My guest today knows a bit about our next generation leaders. He has advised, counseled, and mentored them for years. Jason Ma is an expert on the future of our workforce because he's helped countless young achievers get into the schools of their choice, land their first job, and navigate the ever-changing professional landscape both in and out of Silicon Valley. From boomers to Zoomers, Jason has become a leading voice for all generations, whether they're planning for college, just entering the workforce, or simply trying to stay ahead of the curve. Before Jason Ma found his calling as an advisor and consultant, he spent years immersed in the startup world. He's launched a handful of companies on his own, and he's invested in several others over the years, both in the San Francisco Bay Area and overseas. He came with his parents to the U.S. from Hong Kong at age 11. The family settled in San Francisco, where his father worked as a cook and a building custodian, and his mother was a seamstress. Mom and dad spoke little English, but Jason and his brother and sister quickly acclimated to life in the States. So... Mom and dad, like many immigrant Chinese parents, they were born and raised in China. My dad passed earlier this year at 96. My mom is 90 right now. And it's so funny. My dad grew up in a village in the Guangdong province, right? The biggest province, right? Adjacent to Hong Kong. Through the World War II. But his village was so poor that the Japanese never bothered to go into the village. So he himself did not directly experience World War II. Why my, on my mom's side, their family was uh, wealthy. So she saw the bombs, boom, sometimes you have to run to the caves and escape the Japanese bombing and so like that. And then one of my uncles who I never met was a provincial national war hero. A lot of, a lot of stories. So my mom's side grew up in a big 
family of over 10, I think one or two kids did not make it. And then one or two of them got killed off or something during the war. Their stories are pretty fascinating. I never asked them questions as a kid, but as we are getting more and more gray here, then we learn to appreciate our parents a little more. And once you ask a lot of good questions to your parents, where well, you learn so much, which is how I transfer to my students as well, including my daughters, right? Get to know your parents more. They might have some interesting stories for you. Yeah, well, and the legacy. Like, so what did you bring from, I miss your first experience coming to San Francisco, although San Francisco has one of the largest Chinese communities in Chinatown outside of China. I mean, it still must have been pretty awestruck for you. As a kid, as an 11-year-old, I don't know. I thought it was like, hey, this is real cool. Totally new experience for me, right? It's like so many, so much space semi-suburb feel in an urban area in Hong Kong. And I we spent a, a year and a half living with my auntie in the Sunset District. And you go back to the Sunset District, it feels like time hasn't changed at all. The houses look exactly the same compared to 40 years ago, 50 years ago. And then moved to the poor side of Napil by Chinatown. So we go to Chinatown all the time. And remember, we're in this alley in the edge of Napil and Chinatown, right? And then this side is a rich side, this side is a poor side. We were living on the poor side, rented a house, and then the apartment owner or something like that, always looked down from multi-story complex. I used to play wall ball on this outdoor parking lot, but right? he always kind of yelled at me for not to do that. I was a kid, I don't know. So it was a little bit mean. It was a bit of an interesting experience. So when you're in school, in Lowell High School, was college education that was already factored in that you knew you were going to go to college? That was like the next... Kind of. Life was much simpler back then, back in the late, late 70s, right? SAT, I didn't even prep. I took the SAT twice and no prep. And I was a good student. I was probably one of the smallest students in my, in my group of kids, right? I wasn't that smart. And I started deteriorating my grades because I got kind of seduced a little bit by the other stuff. In my junior in high school, used to be a straight-A student, middle school and, and high school. But I managed to get into Berkeley, and a lot of my students, my classmates, did not, right? And I got into Berkeley Engineering. It's like, hey, that's cool. I was not really that interested in engineering. Back in high school, low high school always has, has had for decades a great reputation for kind of top-tier college prep, blah, blah, blah. But not all kids became successful. But... Today versus yesterday are very different contexts. So let's talk about your first job out of college. So when you were at school in engineering, did you do internships or work? My first job, you know, the context back then is not like today, right? Today in college, if you're driven, it's wise for you to pick up real employable work experience students, if not even back in high school, in college, right? So you want to get real quality internships through college. But back then, once again, things were much simpler back then. But my first job was with a company called TimeNet. And TimeNet and Telenet were the sort of the commercial internet precursors. And so a lot of internet pioneers came from TimeNet and Telenet. We were one of the two leading public data services providers, right? And I was working in the management sciences department, which is sort of like the internal technology management consulting department within the operations division in TimeNet. And I was literally a data scientist back then. Traffic analysis, put together reports, write some programs to improve productivity. Our job is to improve profitability, cut costs, 
for the entire network operations way and some advanced research along with other departments as well. We were even thinking about AI back then. And so my three colleagues, they all got a PhD masters from Stanford and Berkeley. Back then they were pretty snobbish. Maybe it's convenient for them. They're hired only from Stanford and Berkeley, right? Only people from operations research or equivalent. And so I was always the youngest kid. And TimeNet, I was there for three years and TimeNet was not doing well as I was progressing there. They had multiple layoffs. My department hired a lot more people and all the people that hired were older than me, you know, master's, PhD, some of them got laid off and I stuck around and I was a late boomer. I, in fact, I had four bosses in the same department and I remained the same. And three years later, I was still there and it was a latter part of my tenure there where I really performed, right? And people saw me, Jason, you are late. Your curve is not like this, your curve is like this. You go slower in the beginning and then you go like that, right? So which is real congruent to how I feel my life cycle for the past decades. I'm kind of a late bloomer. Do you feel like you observe processing people and, and then apply it to yourself? That's part of it. Fast forward to today, I think what I do today is much more exciting than yesterday. I learned quite a bit. And I was in engineering for a couple of companies, for TimeNet, for a network, for a network equipment company, worked for a Fujitsu multi-billion dollar company, the American subsidiary, which was a billion or multi-billion already here, and learned the, the large company bureaucracy and learned how the Japanese top management works and all that, which is very interesting. I love going to Japan. And then I got into international sales. It's all technology companies, all American companies, right? Most of them based in Silicon Valley, one based in Memphis. And I was always the head of, uh, initially as an area sales manager for one tech company. And then I was like managing director for, for almost most of other companies, right? The head of Asia Pacific. And for most of these companies, it's got communications, networking, infrastructure, mobile, wireless, and later on internet services. And so I ran, you know, Asia Pacific, pretty much uh, greater China, Southeast Asia, Japan, Korea, Australasia, Indian subcontinent. And uh, fast forward to today, I think all the air and ground travel I did, it's probably approaching 3 million miles. After spending more than a decade traveling on his company's dime, Jason decided to go off on his own. He and a team of partners launched a mobile payments company that operated in both Beijing and Silicon Valley. He later launched his first consulting firm and eventually helped found an education services company in China. That company would merge with the chain of education centers in the States and become Ivy Max. It was there where he first started counseling students on how to get into college. In 2011, he opened 3EQ, his first consulting firm dedicated exclusively to mentoring and coaching. So we're big on elite college admissions. And we just hacked the system on how it works, right? We know exactly how all the Ivy schools think, how Stanford thinks, how MIT thinks, how character thinks, you know, Northwestern, John Hopkins, Duke, UC Berkeley. So the top 50 plus research universities about our schools, we know exactly how these admission offices think, right? We hacked it, we perfected it. And I learned it so much, right? So back then and today, still, especially public high schools, even better public high schools, not to mention the mediocre ones, not to mention the not so well-run ones, right? If the high schools were perfect, which they are far from, 
there's no need for me. There's no need for education companies that are outside of the actual school systems. But it's so imperfect. For example, the school system is still 150 years old, right? Period zero, one, two, three, four, five. The way they teach is not that smart, frankly speaking. Just a lot of rote and kind of not personalized and doesn't really get into the pragmatic, emotional, social leadership intelligence. And EQ, emotional intelligence, is not enough for me. It's getting tried. People talk about that, that I don't see many people perfecting that. But I like to lift out the word social along with leadership intelligence. Emotional, social, and leadership intelligence. Pragmatic in front of that. Pragmatic means results-oriented and practical. Okay, emotion is an instant manifestation of your belief system, your self-talk or your language in your brain or thoughts and your physiology. It all works together. So what did you take from the Silicon Valley itself is, you know, the philosophy is elastized, not just, I mean, we, we have a geographic area, but it's elastized around the world, right? What did you take from all of your, your work in the Silicon Valley that, you apply to that as well? What is that bridge? Well, you know, I never left. I'm, I live in Silicon Valley, been there for 47 years, right? And these days, my clients include both teenagers, their parents, of course, right? And also even powerful CEOs, Gen X, 50s. And uh, in fact, most of you are you know, kind of red-blooded American, you know, Caucasian or whatever, right? And innovation, entrepreneurship, powering through, have an open mind, I'm not good with the kids that are not coachable or the adults that are not coachable. I require my students to be coachable. They're committed, resourceful, decisive. Then there's a two-way conversation, right? Then my job is to help you achieve your greatest outcomes that you deserve and you get more peace, better relationships, which go a long, long way, better state of mind. Even if it comes to very wealthy families, then succession planning is easier for you then the patriarchs, matriarchs feel better about handing money to the kids, right? Along the way, I would horizontally hone your 3EQ and 4S, your visionary story or belief system, your state of mind management, right? Emotional, intellectual, literal, spiritual as well. Doesn't matter whether you believe, believer or not. Most of my, my students are non-believers. It doesn't matter to me, right? And strategies and execution, you got a variety of strategies that matter to you and then your soft skills, right? When it comes to soft skills, I'm very big on that. Critical thinking, strategic thinking, problem solving, a little bit of creativity, or a lot of creativity based on your path, right? That's right for you. And then your communication skills, and then your collaboration team skills, very important. Yeah, so let's break it down. You call this a family business. Who else in your family is involved in the 3EQ? My kids and wife, and I have a editing team as well. And one of them has been working with me for 10 years. So she knows my standards, which are very, very high. My family values are unconditional love, humor, sometimes silly humor, because it makes people laugh, right? Kids especially. And these, especially high achievers, right? They have a schedule. You kind of give some, inject some humor, kind of stress relief for them, kind of, right? And then high standards in what matters. So I operate only based on integrity, high standards, right? Very, very important to me. And are your kids Gen Zs? My kids are 24 and 21. My older daughter is a Google software engineer. And she went to Georgetown, which is not even known for computer science. In fact, she went into Georgetown as a business major in the McDonald's School of Business. 
and then got bit by the Silicon Valley bug and then kind of transferred into the CS part. Really hustled to learn. And your second? My second kid is a Penn uh, Warren senior. In fact, I'm in her room right now in her house. Oh, of love it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. She's having a blast at Penn. Not, not too many kids will let their parents in their dorm. So did you use your three EQ methodology? Totally. So just let's talk about that. Were they the first? No. The first were back in 2007 in my previous education company. Okay. Education slash ed tech company. So we talk about Gen Zs. I think this is really important for us to, to, set, to really understand, zoom in on this. So boomers think very differently than the millennials, right? And I think that's why I approached you. I said, enough talk about the millennials. We, we've all been working with millennials for a while. We know how they think. We know how they buy. We know their psychographics. But the Gen Z is this quieter, grew up in the digital age, right? Their parents are impacted by the economic downturn, right? So their values are different. So how is it that you chose the Zs? You have Gen X CEOs, and then you have the Gen Z younger. And what is the bridge of working your skill and working, applying the three EQ to help both of them work in harmony? Because they're different. Sure. Okay. There are a couple of questions you're actually asking here. Okay. Okay. Gen Zs by themselves are pretty much uh, middle school, high school, college kids, and young working adults. That's Gen Z for you. Up to around age 25 now, okay? 24, 25. And both my kids are in that category. And then uh, the bulk of my students, a couple of hundred students that I mentored one-on-one over the past 14 years, mostly in my previous company, or actually high school students. And that was a sweet spot for us. Even in 3EQ, I... The bulk of my students historically has still been in high school or college students, right? Because they're much more malleable, number one. Number two, they're still under the parents' payroll. Parents pay me, not the kids, right? So today, they have to write me a big check for me to selectively pick students, right? I select students, select clients. And the Gen X, you got Gen Z, Millennials, Gen X, and Boomers, right? I'm actually Taylor and Boomer, but I I think I know how different uh, generations think so clearly right? Know them psychologically extremely well. And sometimes I interpret and tell them how they're thinking. They go, oh my God, Mr. Ma or Jason, that's exactly what I'm going through. You articulate that much better than I do, right? <laughs> Give us some clarity. When it comes to the 3Q part, the pragmatic, emotional, social leadership intelligence, that applies to everyone. Applies to Donna, applies to Jason, applies to your kids, my kids, okay? You want to keep on honing that with humility, because lifelong learning or education is required. You better keep reskilling and upskilling and keep beefing up your own soft skills and mindset, okay? And keep honing your strategy and keep kind of finding out ways where you can improve part of your execution to get stuff done, right? And the soft skills will stay with you forever. Some of the hard skills you learn might be obsolete two, three, four years later. You have to keep at it. It is what it is, okay? That's digital. Because at the end of the day, I could tell you one thing. And that's why today, when I mentor achievers or high achievers in high school, I start injecting into them employable skills early on. In the old days, I used to drink their summer between junior to senior year, sophomore to junior year in high school, you know, get into some competitive summer camps or competitive whatever academic thing here. But these days, I tend to like to get the junior to senior summer activity is very important, right, in high school. Get them some practical work experience. So your internships? Internships. 
So is there an accelerator part of the process that they... It starts on your resume. Then you stack on your work experience. Because one thing that employers care about, especially if you want to work for high-paid jobs, impactful jobs in elite companies, tech companies, they're hyper picky. Okay, you want to work at Google? The hiring rate is 0.25%. That's, uh, in fact, I know the former senior vice president for people operations or HR at Google. He's a superstar, right? Google is super famous when it comes to culture. He said it's 20, 25 times harder to get into Google than to get into Harvard. He wasn't kidding you. So it's a miracle my older daughter got in there, right? And it is what it is. So employers care about your employable skills and your conduct, okay? You graduate from Harvard, from Stanford, from Berkeley Engineering, from Wharton. Okay, more doors are open to you. People perceive that you are smart. But once you get in, you better perform. If you don't perform, you're fired. It is what it is, right? That's what employers care about. And what do you think this last during COVID? I mean, it's been really challenging because you get this new batch of graduates, right? That are looking for work. We're hiring differently. Where a lot of companies are still hybrid mode. How have you adjusted the 3EQ to, to that? For me, it's very easy. Number one, working from home using Zoom. I've been doing that for 10 years. And working in a hotel, working mobily, globally, no big deal. Like for now, I'm working mobily with you, talking with you mobily, 3,000 miles away from my home office in Silicon Valley, right, using Zoom. And uh, in fact, Eric Yuan, the founder, CEO, chairman of Zoom, is a good friend of mine. We've been with each other for 15 years, right? I saw him give birth at Zoom when he was a board member for my previous company because <laughs> I bought him in as an investor. And I've been a Zoom customer for a long, long time. So I'm very used to working remotely. It's very productive, by the way, using Zoom. Number one. Number two, during COVID, despite the macro pains and all the stuff going on for everyone here, I found quite a bit of a blessing in disguise. And for my business, of course, it's slow delivery because the world stopped, right, when, when COVID happened for the first couple of months or quarters. But it hasn't changed at all. And for I do feel I do feel especially bad, I tell you, I have to say this, for the parents of middle school and grade school kids. Oh, my gosh. And for the teachers. I mean, they have to work extra hard to scramble on how to do that, right? How could you expect kids to do classes in, over Zoom? And imagine your PE teacher in the middle school. It's impossible, correct? So the moms and all that. Well, so yeah, you and I are skilled in doing this because we've you know, been consulting for years, but I had a problem finding interns. Usually I hire two or three interns every year. And I was everywhere from you know Indeed to LinkedIn to just networking and, and the PR organizations and the journalism clubs were, were not inactive. So finding, I ended up, no joke, finding my my number one intern candidate as a recommendation from my hairdresser. And just out of, you know, college, I've been out of school for like, you know, 18 months looking for a job and nobody was interviewing the traditional way. So that was one of my own, my personal challenges. But it wasn't that there weren't available, well-minded people with experience, but it was actually finding them because a lot of them were at home, back at home with their families, trying to just navigate getting in COVID, needless to say, look for a job, right? And so I think that's been, you know, the Gen Z is pretty resilient generation going from the digital, always plugged in to their parents were in this economic crisis and now they're getting out of college, graduating, and they're faced with COVID. 
I mean, it's the generation, I mean, I don't know, is it Teflon? <laughs> I mean, is there the Zoomers and the Boomers, you know, more similar than not? Very good point, Donna. I find that, now I have to say this first, I do feel, especially for the high school seniors and a college freshman last year, because one-time life experiences were taken away from them. And so Gen Z are more pragmatic because they grew up, a lot of them grew up in situations where they experienced, you know, not like a lot of a kind of, a lot of millennials. Millennials got different stages as well, right? You got the younger ones, you got the, the, the old ones, you got the ones with family and kids. So it was actually very diverse. But uh, a lot of Gen Zs are a little bit less diverse, but they are very savvy. They saw the hardships from the parents and they grew up without this. That means that you chopped the white arm off, right? This is part of the body. And so they're very, they're more pragmatic in some ways. They're less wishy-washy, kind of less, oh, no matter what, you get a trophy. They don't have the mindset. They're more practical. So in a way, I'm actually very excited about Gen Z. So I come to you freshman, sophomore year, and I'm like, my kids, I, my kids want to go to college. They don't know where they exactly what they want to stay, what to do. Like, take me through your boot camp of what we're going to do like the next two or three years. Is it two or three years or all four years of high school or? It's all over the map. It's wiser to come in during freshman, sophomore year. Then allows me more time to mold you, right? Because you cannot expect a lot of parents, right? One common mistake that parents make, and I see a lot of uh, even very powerful, smart, rich parents, right? They do the same thing. They make the same mistake, which, which sort of is like, you come in late, like before the senior year, thinking that your kid is up here and the kid wants to get into these real hyper-competitive schools. But when I do a quick assessment, oh my God, the kid's not actually down here. There's a perception gap. There's no time for you to, to improve, right? Without cheating, right? So when you come in earlier, the first thing that I do is to assess where you're at academically and non-academically. So whether you're in freshman year, sophomore year, uh, junior, senior, or for senior, then it's college admission time, college application time for two quarters, right? And then, but before that is really college planning, but it's also leadership building, communication skills building, mindset shaping, activity shaping in ways that's authentic to you, okay? I mean, very simple, Donna, I'll ask you a simple question, okay? You are a movie star. Do you think that you're gonna be able to make a great movie without a great director? No. Simple as that. So without a great director, a lot of the families have delusions thinking that, oh, my kids already go to private school. They're all set. Yeah, right. I coach uh, every single one of the top private schools and public schools across Silicon Valley, right? There are a whole bunch of them, including the richest city in America called Atherton, in which the median price is $7 million for a home. Okay, all the private schools. It's a small city, by the way, too. Small city and private <laughs> schools, right? Lower high school, et cetera. I know exactly the uh, imperfections they have, right? And it's like, I even tell my students and the client parents, okay, all right, when you talk to your college counselor, your teachers, if they advise you something here, don't make a decision yet, bounce it off me. Because oftentimes I hear, is that what they advise you? Oh my God, they're sandbagging you or whatever. Here's the thing, it's very simple. These are all very nice middle-class people. I'm not saying that in a condescending way. I'm just saying that practically. They're very nice middle-class people. They simply don't have a lot of sophistication. Like for me, I come from, I'm a tech CEO. I'm a tech executive, right? And I compounded mentorship, college counseling, life coaching, leadership coaching, career coaching on top of my tech business savvy. So integrate that and I see the world quite a bit. 
And I bring all these experiences and channel that into the student in ways that is fun for them as well. I'm very playful with kids, right? And uh, so start compounding that, then start shaping their academics. In fact, kids go through me to plan classes, to take the optimal courses. And along the way, I'm not here to tell them what to do. I'm here to coach them, train them. Here's why you do that. Along the way, they learn why. Then it stacks onto the mindset and skill set, right? And know-how, sophistication. And activity shaping in, in school year, in summers, even during winters, whatever. And make sure you get enough sleep. I'm very big on coaching kids on getting enough sleep, getting enough rest, and very nurturing uh, part of the, the 4S3Q measure process. And then uh, I even coach kids on how to optimize when and why to take the SAT or ACT at the right time based on certain foundational, educational foundation. And then you have to pick the right one-on-one -on -one or class mentor tutors. Some kids don't need that, but it's very hyper-situational because every kid's different, right? So I get to know them so well. I get to know all my students more than the parents know them in some ways. It is scary effective because the kids, right? It is what it is. Kids, parents, trust a third-party mentorship uh, way below the Holy Trinity, you know, in the Bible. But without a trusted third-party mentorship, there's always something missing. Donna, you could be a PhD in psychology and English from Harvard. You could be a billionaire, but your kids will never fully listen to you. You're too close. You tell them stuff here, it might not be the best advice. It sounds like you have a system put in place that basically this boot camp that, that allows any kid in any, it could be, you know, Fresno, California versus Frisco, right? Or Michigan. And the step in which you can take so that your anything is possible. Okay. There are a couple of situations here. My client base is worldwide. Okay. And I start from where they're at. It doesn't matter. I said, you don't even have to tell me more right now. I start from where you're at. Okay. You could be just affluent or whatever. And sometimes I take kind of poor family as a small part of my philanthropy, but I, I, I already have different philanthropy buckets that I don't want to do to deviate from that. Today I have to be more selective when it comes to taking client families. But let's say that you're a very wealthy family in, in New York, in Manhattan, or Long Island, or something like that, okay? Then you wanna go for, your kid is already in a coveted private school in Manhattan. We know who those, who those are, right? And Or coveted uh, public high school, whatever. Then, yeah, they're driven, you've got tiger parents and all that. It's very, very annoying. But then I have to, it's my duty to communicate with them in a respectful but practical way, because I'm the authority, they're not. Got it? They all listen to me. And if they prefer to be not coachable, that means I did a bad job in picking the client. These days, it doesn't happen. I pick coachable families only, okay? Both kids and parents. And I speak quite a bit. I speak in front of billionaires, in front of these very powerful people. They all listen to me. They take my advice, right? So it's very easy for me to communicate with them. It's not an issue. But if I feel that certain parents are so blocked in their own limiting part of a mindset for whatever reason. Oftentimes it's face, it's social capital, it's per perception, it's pride, it's ego, you see. And, and sometimes it comes from a little bit of a darker place, depends on the parent. Then I have to, let's say that we are signed up, then it's my responsibility to have a one-on-one -on -one private conversation with them and kind of explain to them how things really work. There are multiple ways of getting in there, right? And I'll do the best I can to guide your kid and all that and to help you. I never guarantee anything. It's just that the results always turn out to be great if your coach will commit it, right? 
And along the way, I tell you, a lot of parents back off. They learn. They kind of reflect. They meditate. Say, "Hmm, man, maybe I should improve my own three EQ and four S." Right. So along the way, the parents get educated as well. So it's not a strict mercenary thing, right? I just avoid mercenary people. <laughs> What's your message to a future employer? How does the future employer, whether they're you know Fortune five hundred or an you know smaller startup, you know, what do they really need to be prepared for with the Gen Zs? Okay. In fact, I wrote quite a bit about that. I wrote a chapter in an ebook called Digital Gen Z, okay? and I pretty much uh, kind of give some guidance to the CEOs, executives, managers on how to work with Gen Z. And one message I tell them is that be more humble. Okay, while some of you mentor the Gen Z and the younger people, let the Gen Z reverse mentor you when it comes to some digital stuff. It makes it much much easier. And take advantage of the strengths. You have to leverage on people's strengths. Don't leverage on the weaknesses. If the weaknesses are necessary to be converted to be a strength in the job, then help them. If not, then focus on their strengths and put them in the right positions. In the right positions, even for kids from Princeton, from Harvard, from Stanford, the first couple of years, guess what? You're still just a staff, right? You're not there yet in executive or even manager. But the the wiser ones rise up to be in, into management pretty quickly because they could communicate well. They have leadership skills, right? Communication skills is very very important. I'm very big on that. And even for my super introverted students, I'm very very big on communication. Employers need to be wise, hire well, okay, fire fast, but with compassion. And for those that deserve to be developed, develop them, you know. And you don't have to hire grade A people all the time for good mechanical, tactical thing, accounting. Then you could hire good B pluses, because the A plus they don't want to be stuck at that position. They want to rise up faster. So you got to be、uh, discerning enough on who to hire. What roles do you need? How do they help you? How do they complement you? And be humble enough to accept some reverse mentoring. That's a message for employers. That was Jason Ma. One of the more ambitious projects he's taken on was his 2014 book, Young Leaders 3.0. It focuses on a group of 23 Gen Z and millennial students aged between 17 and 24. The students all attended elite universities in the United States and abroad, including MIT, Oxford, and all eight Ivy League schools. The book followed each student through their four years of school and even into their first jobs, and notes the patterns that Jason observed in high-achieving students and young professionals. Each of those students is now out in the world doing great things, and true to form, Jason says he has remained in touch with most of these future leaders. And still offers them guidance and words of wisdom as they embark on changing the world. Thank you for listening. Follow Before Happen on Instagram and Twitter, and don't forget to subscribe, rate, and share the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Before Happen is produced by me, Donna Laughlin, along with Studio Pod Media. The executive producer is Katie Sunku Wood, and all episodes are written and developed by Jack Bure, with additional editing and music provided by Nota Labs.